0: From New Hampshire Public Radio and the Howe Library in Hanover, New Hampshire, you're listening to Check This Out, a new literary series where we dive deeply into the works of emerging and diverse authors you may not have discovered yet. I'm your host, Rachel Barenbaum, author of the novel Atomic Anna. I am thrilled to be able to share these conversations with you over the next few weeks. Today, my guest is Angie Kim. Her new novel is Happiness Falls. As a preteen, Angie Kim moved from Seoul, South Korea, to Baltimore without knowing how to read or write in English. She clawed her way up to Stanford and Harvard, studied philosophy and the law, and has just published her second novel, Happiness Falls. Kim tackles big themes in this novel through the lens of a biracial family, a family that is Korean and white. To this mix, She adds untraditional gender roles and a character with a dual diagnosis of autism and Angelman syndrome. This character, Eugene, is the last person to see his father alive. He can't tell us what happened, and I tore through these pages trying to piece together the mystery and getting to know this incredible family. Angie, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much, Rachel. I am so excited to be here, and I can't say how much it means to me that to hear your words about happiness falls. Thank you so much.
0: So, on the surface, this book lays out a plot that we know. It's a thriller, right? Happy family, dad goes missing while on his daily hike with his youngest son. No one realizes he's gone for hours and search ensues. So we love and know this plot. Millions and millions of people love it. But why I really love this book is because that is just the surface. And what this book is really about is language and memory and the narratives that we invent to fill silences and gaps. Narratives We create to build a family. And for me, what really pulled me in more than anything was silence and the theme of silence, because I think that is the most powerful language and force in this book. Um, and the way that you write about silence just felt intensely personal. Um, and I just loved that, and that is what sets this book apart from other thrillers that are out there and really raises it up to be the amazing book that it is. So, Angie, can you set the stage for us?
1: Yeah, so Happiness Falls is about a family in crisis. It's um, about a Korean-American biracial family living in Northern Virginia, which is where I am right now also, And one day, the father and the 14-year-old teenager go on a hike in the nearby woods, and only the teenager returns home. And he is Eugene, 14 years old, who has a dual diagnosis of autism and mosaic Angelman syndrome, which means that he can't talk. Which means that he can't, even if he knows, even if he desperately wants to, he cannot tell the family what has happened. Um, or the police and so that sets everything in motion and the family which is a very close loving family but very quirky in many ways um, have to come together to really try to connect and as you said Rachel fill the silence and try to figure out a way to connect and truly communicate with each other And with Eugene in particular.
0: So from the beginning, we know that there's a witness. We know that Eugene knows, saw what happened, but he can't communicate. He can't tell the family what happened. Um, And so we have Mia, who's the main point of view, who opens up. And you have this amazing first line. I absolutely love it. We didn't call the police right away. (laughs) How long did it take to come up with that line? Um,
1: I think I came up with it. I have a record of it. I think it was like in July of 2020. And I started writing it and thinking about this family like 10 years ago. So, you know, so the, uh, but as soon as I came up with that, I actually called my agent and I was like, what do you think of this line? What do you think of that voice? And she was like, we need to sell it right now. And I was like, okay, well, we need to I need to write some more first. <laughs> but yeah. So that was great.
0: what I really love about that opening line too is that it shows the progression of how things happen, right? Because you, we are set programmed to think it's just a normal day yeah. and we don't think about what might be different, what might change, right? Just because Eugene come home comes home alone doesn't mean necessarily that dad isn't there. And in fact, you go through pages and pages where Mia is saying actually, she thought he was there. Yeah, exactly.
1: Because this is the thing is that um, she is such an observant narrator. She is so smart, and she overthinks everything. So you kind of think, how could somebody who's so smart, she's 20 years old, she's home from college, it's the beginning of the pandemic, how could somebody so smart miss something so basic as that? And the thing is that Eugene is, by virtue of having this diagnosis and by virtue of having so many different needs that get attended to by the entire family and how many therapy sessions he has and how much work the entire family is doing for him, it's inconceivable to anyone that they, that Eugene would actually come home alone. And so because of that, I think people are, I think Mia was kind of like, well, of course he's not alone. I mean, that's just around the corner or, you know, who knows where he is, but he's definitely around. It doesn't even occur to her. And, you know, whereas if it were like a typical, quote unquote, typical 14 year old who came home alone, then you might be like, huh. Where is, why are you home alone? You know what I'm saying? So I think in a way, the atypicality of Eugene and this family's makeup is actually what led to this situation where they were just like, yeah, of course, of course that's around. He's always around.
0: Right, so hours and hours pass, and they're like, oh, Dad's just here or there, and just assuming it's a normal day and he's around. Um, Could you read to us, please, um, a passage sort of where where we start to hear these questioning of,
1: of, is this really a normal day? Yeah. But sometimes, when something happens, or rather, when something might have happened, you can keep your fear at bay by denying it, confirming its seriousness by saying it out loud— hello, we have an emergency, our dad is missing, it is not only terrifying, but seems unwise when there are still two ways this might go. The moment hangs in balance like a seesaw, and the slightest win could be the deciding factor between up or down, found or lost, safe or dead. I saw in mom's eyes the same thought. Calling the police would mean this was a big deal. Laughing it off as silly dad might be just what we needed to make it fall the other way. Tell the universe to leave it alone. Let us be. You don't have to say it. I know. Wishing, pretending doesn't make it so. We knew that. Maybe it was plain old-fashioned selfishness, a desire to sustain the relative tranquility of our lives a little longer, for Eugene's sake, if nothing else. I could almost hear it. Dad saying, I'm fine. Don't worry about me. Worry about Eugene. He's the one you have to take care of. So that's what we did. And of course, looking back, it seems clear. Buying ourselves this half day of ignorance, hardly blissful, let's call it pre-painful, brought us so much more trouble later. So good. So
0: there we have Mia and the family realizing they should have acted sooner, right? And there's a lot of guilt around that. Uh, Yeah, so much guilt, especially looking back. But again, here we get to one of your themes is memory. And Mia and the family start examining what they remembered happened that day, right? And they start, you know, memories start to shift. Can you talk about how you treated memory and how you thought about it as you were writing this?
1: Yeah, So Mia is the sole narrator here, and she is telling the story from after sort of all the events that are recounted in the story have occurred, and a few months later. And so she is trying to process everything. She's done a lot of processing already, and she's trying to make sense of it, and she's trying to figure out what it is that she remembers about each moment and what they could have done differently and sort of doing these if only types of things, because it's still close enough in time to when all of this happened that she's still beating herself up. And who knows, maybe she'll be beating herself up 50 years from then. But you know, this is only a few months in the future. And she's really trying to make sense of everything. But at the same time, everything is kind of clear still in her mind. And so there's a lot of ruminating, there's a lot of sort of thinking things through and analyzing each moment and the micro anomalies that she is noticing, perhaps as she's remembering for the first time. And it seems
0: so natural, too, to go back and say, did I really see this or did I see that? Right. I mean, you really capture that very human element to that memory.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And she's such an overthinker anyway. So, of course, she's going to do that. And she's also the kind of person who sort of thinks a lot about the multiverse and, you know, what if something had happened? What if I had done this? What would have played out? And sort of playing those logic games also with herself, you know? If you're just joining us, I'm Rachel Barenbaum. My guest today
0: is Angie Kim, and you're listening to Check This Out on New Hampshire Public Radio. We're talking about her new novel, Happiness Falls. So, Angie, we've set the stage. We know that Dad has gone missing, and Mia, the main character, his daughter, is trying to figure out what happened. And as they dig into the mystery of where is Dad, um, they also come to the question of who was Dad? And then Mia figures out that he is uh, working on something he calls the happiness quotient. Yes. So let's talk about that. Yes.
1: Big, mysterious
0: h q as you label it right earlier yeah, on, absolutely,
1: yeah, so happiness quotient is something that I myself have been completely obsessed by. Um, and um, the relativity of happiness is something that I've thought about a lot. I'm a Korean immigrant, and when I was eleven, we moved from Seoul, South Korea to the Baltimore area, and we were really poor in Korea. And so we lived in one room, my parents and I, and we didn't have running water. We didn't have um electricity. We didn't have much. And so when we got the news that we got a visa to come to the U- U.S., it was like winning the lottery. That's what we kept on hearing from everybody. It's like you guys won the lottery. And we felt so lucky. And then coming to the U.S., um, I, we lived with my aunt and uncle at first, and I had my own bedroom for the first time. We had indoor plumbing. We had toilets, showers, microwaves, and refrigerators, these things that I had never seen before. I'd never seen a color TV before. So it was magical in some ways, but, um, and I kept on telling myself, Oh, I'm so lucky. I should be so happy. But then, subjectively, I lost so much in the move. I lost my sense of identity. I could no longer speak, you know, because I didn't speak English. I couldn't understand anything. I was the weird kid in middle school who was being made fun of. Uh, So the happiness quotient is a theory that the dad has. That happiness is relative. And that you have to take your happiness level as you experience something and divide it by your expectations of what you thought the experience was going to be plus uh, combine that with your baseline your baseline life and so the quotient, by dividing those two things, or three things rather, uh, you get the happiness quotient. And so if your expectations or your baseline life is uh, less, then even if you have the same experience, your happiness quotient is going to be higher and you're going to feel more happiness. That is his theory. And he wants to kind of experiment to see if that's really true, especially for his family. And if that is true, then could he possibly make his family happier by lowering their expectations or lowering their baseline view of what their life is like? Right? I love this. And
0: so as he's looking at this idea of the happiness quotient, he has twins that he can compare it to, right? So he has John and Mia, and they have different baselines or thoughts or preconceptions, which again, you get to, this gets us to a bigger picture question of what is happiness. And in one of his journals, um, we actually have his notes, he wrote, normalcy equals desirable. Is this assumption true? Many normal, quote unquote, teens seem miserable, (laughs) So tell me, right, can you can we talk about that? Like, is normalcy desirable?
1: Yeah, I mean, normalcy is something that I think as an outsider, I have struggled with a lot, you know, wanting to be normal and thinking if only I could just be normal, whatever that means, then I would be so much happier. And and I think especially for a family that's biracial like theirs, um, with lots of different, um, issues of feeling like cultural outsiders, both in the U S and also when they, the family lived in Korea for a little while, this is something that they've thought about. And then, especially in having a child like Eugene, who has lots of medical issues, digestive issues, he has, um, motor control issues. So he needed to learn to do things that you just Think of as typical kid things like running and jumping. And and he can't communicate, so he can't talk, so he can't express his desires. He can't make connections with a family in that way. And they have to sort of guess at what he wants. But at the same time, one of the hallmarks of Angelman syndrome, which he has, is that he has a persistent smile. And so he seems very happy and he laughs a lot. And so the outward expression seems to imply that he's happy. And yeah, and so they're having to sort of think, well, we could try to enroll him in some of these clinical trials that have quote unquote genetic fixes for Angelman syndrome. But is that really what we want? Um, and you do have to think about sort of the micro versus macro conceptions of happiness, which is something the dad talks about um, with respect to Eugene in particular, because even if you're sort of hedonistically happy, moment to moment and you're, you know, uh, laughing a lot and you're, you know, sit, uh, sitting around watching funny movies that you love all day long. Yes, you might be happy at in the micro level, but are you satisfied truly with your life? If you had that kind of a life where you did that every day, would you still be satisfied with your life? Is that the kind of life that you would want? Is that the kind of life that you would want for your child? Um, So these are kinds of issues that the dad and the family are having to grapple with. Yes, as they also try to figure out who their dad is, right? And so
0: as we go along, as you were saying, there are all these different sorts of theories, right? Maybe he ran away. Maybe he was having an affair. All of a sudden, there are, you know, a thousand different ways that this could go. And you leave us with saying, what happened to dad? who is dad.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that can be such a disconcerting thing when you find things about somebody that you thought you knew so intimately and so well, and you assume you knew everything that there was about him. And then all of a sudden you think, wait, did I? All right. I'm
0: Rachel Barenbaum. You're listening to Check This Out on NHPR. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the bigger themes and ideas here in this amazing new novel by Angie Kim. We're talking about her book, Happiness Falls. Don't go away. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, I'm Rachel Barenbaum. My guest today is Angie Kim. We're talking about her new novel, Happiness Falls, and this is Check This Out on New Hampshire Public Radio. Angie, thanks again for joining us. I want to talk to you about some of the bigger themes. There are so many in this book i'm not even sure where to start <laughs> if I'm being honest. We've talked a little bit about silence, um, but I really want to dig into um, one of the things that you bring up is that our DNA collectively in the world is like ninety nine point nine 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 percent right so whatever that number is yeah. identical, and there are yeah. these tiny, tiny minute you know, sort of variations that make us all different. And so you've presented very different characters here. Um, And in particular, um, right, we have the difference between Eugene, who has autism and Angelman syndrome, versus his twins, Mia and John. And we're trying to unlock, right, what that means. So how did you think about these tiny differences? and, And why did you feel that it was so important to lay them out this way?
1: Partly, I think it's the voice. Mia, who is the narrator, is somebody who focuses in on very specific, minute details. And as a writer, I, that's, it's the small things that interest me. Um, and so I think it was natural to focus in on those. And it's also thinking about the fact that we do, as humans, have so much in common with each other, and yet we focus in on the things that make some, some of us different. And so this is, at its heart, I think, a novel about the commonalities and the connections that we have with each other, as well as the things that set us apart, and examining and interrogating whether those differences are sort of, you know, all that they're cracked up to be and that we as humans make them out to be. So in that sense, it was really important. And also, I think it's a natural thing that comes up when you're thinking about genetics, twins, all of that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah. And you also have some very powerful passages talking about racism, um, right? This is a biracial family, as you mentioned. Um, And there's this great um, little passage where Mia writes, "Um, I remember once our high school AP math teacher making some joke about how even though we're twins, it's uncanny how I'm so much better at math than John is, given that I obviously have more of the Asian gene than John does, because I look more Asian, presumably. (laughs) What a passage. Can you talk about that?
1: I think this is one of these things, the whole math Asian thing <laughs> is something that a lot of us Asian Americans talk about because I think it's one of these things that a lot of well-meaning people say as thinking, oh, well, that's not a negative. So, you know, Asian people must love the fact that they're all good at math and, you know, that kind of stereotype and and um, assuming things. And uh, so she, you know, Mia talks about that a lot. And with respect to the differences with John, I do think that it's really interesting. I'm part of a biracial family. My husband is white American. And I think it's so interesting that I didn't really realize that the kids um, who are biracial, some can look more Asian, some can look more white, and that has implications of its own. And in a society that's as where race is just so baked in, um, it can makes the kids sort of feel, uh, it, it raises weird sibling dynamics, um, especially in how the outside world views them and treats them, even though they're the same and from the same family and all of that sort of stuff. So I thought it was an interesting element to explore and how Mia is treated as different and more other and less than than with respect to John, um, even though they're twins.
0: So when I mentioned in my opening that this novel feels so intensely personal, this is an amazing example of that because you then wrote in your um, author's note at the end how when you first came to America, you were asking to go to the bathroom and you were asking for the lavatory but um, the teachers misunderstood and thought, because
1: you're Asian, you're asking for the laboratory. Exactly. Um, This was actually a huge traumatic thing um, that I had to deal with, you know, when I was starting school, because I didn't speak English at all, other than hello and thank you or something like that. And, And I remember thinking, Wait, And I was 11, so I'm in middle school, which is such a hard time anyway. And I remember thinking, wait, what if I need to use the bathroom? And I don't like that seemed really important, you know, seems pretty basic. Yeah, exactly. And my aunt was like, okay, well, and so I said, okay, well, I memorized that from my essential phrases book, you know, where is the bathroom? bathroom but being korean and korean not having the th or r sounds it came out as where is the bathroom and she was like nobody's gonna nobody's gonna understand what you're saying and so you have to say how about lavatory and so i was like lavatory and you know so of course the hilarity you know to them ensued which you know obviously was Awful for me and completely one of those things that um, I cringe thinking about now 40 years later. Yeah. I'm really sorry that
0: happened to you. Um, but I'm really uh, happy that you put this in this book, right? Because I think we need to talk about these things. That's why I do this show, so that we can make sure this doesn't happen again and to other kids in the future. So thank you for sharing that. Um, Also, I wanted to talk about, um, you know, when you come to a new country, your theme about silence again. So we have Eugene who can't speak. He has Angelman syndrome. But then we also have, um, you know, the experience of Mia going to Korea for the first time. And I just love the way you describe this. When we first moved to Korea, because I looked Korean, everyone expected me to be fluent in Korean. When they found out I wasn't, I couldn't understand or speak Korean at all, they assumed something was wrong with me and called me a babo or idiot. There you go. So that, again, was an experience that just felt unbelievably personal and brave that you put that in there because it, I didn't feel like I was reading about Mia as much as it was like your heart was on the page when you wrote that. Yeah. So can you talk to me about that passage and that feeling?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I did. I I had the same experience um, coming to the U.S. from Korea. I didn't, because I didn't speak English I felt stupid for the first time in my life. You know, back in Korea, I was the smart girl. I did well in school. I had lots of friends. I was gregarious. And then all of a sudden, I couldn't speak at all. And I think that experience made me realize for the first time that our society, and that includes me, we equate oral fluency with intelligence deeply so to the point where i knew that i didn't just become stupid overnight and you know because i could still speak a different language i was just trying to learn a you know a new one which so it was understandable to myself anyway that i couldn't under, i couldn't understand or speak this new language and yet i felt stupid intensely so and then when I started learning English to the point where I could understand it receptively but I still couldn't speak it very well, people assumed that I still couldn't understand English you know, just because I had weird syntax and accent and all of that sort of stuff and I realized that people were talking about me in front of me all this time, smiling as if they were being friendly toward me but really saying really mean, nasty things about my accent and making fun of the way that I just don't know anything and things like that. And so it was a humiliating experience. It was a traumatizing experience. And it made me sort of think a lot about the role of speaking in our society and how important that is perceived to be and how... We treat those who, for whatever reason, can't speak, and how we treat them as if they don't have any thoughts or they don't have any words. Yeah.
0: If you're just joining us, I'm Rachel Barenbaum. My guest today is Angie Kim, and you're listening to Check This Out on New Hampshire Public Radio. We're talking about her new novel, Happiness Falls. And we're digging into some of these really deep, hard themes that Angie has very bravely put on the page. Another reason that I love how you brought out this theme of language and silence um, and this projection of stupidity when people can't speak is because it shows us that Mia and John can understand the way Eugene might feel. He can't speak. That doesn't mean that nothing is happening inside of his brain. And I thought that was a beautiful mirror of what's happening and what you're trying to get at. And as the book progresses, we actually find out that maybe Eugene is able to communicate a little bit. So can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And again, this comes from my own experience. And it's an imperfect analogy, the way that Mia feels and the way that Mia's mom felt when she was a Korean immigrant in the U.S., much like I was um, and the limited sort of, um, temporary kind of feelings that they had not being able to speak in one language because they still have an outlet in, you know, the, their primary language and things like that. And just in the same way that I still could speak Korean and I also had, um, an outlet. Um, and I knew that I was going to learn English someday. So against that backdrop. When I was um, about 10 years ago or so, I started learning about a group of kids that I know from having done something called hyperbaric oxygen therapy, which I explore in my debut novel, uh, Miracle Creek. And so I know a bunch of families with children with autism, some were labeled nonverbal quote, low-functioning autism, and um, everybody, including their parents and their doctors, thought and assumed that they couldn't speak. That's why they were labeled nonverbal. They couldn't speak, but also they couldn't think. They didn't have words. They couldn't read. Um, they were doing, you know, um, ABCs and preschool-type stuff in school, things like that. And then all of a sudden, I started learning about therapies in which People were wondering, you know, I wonder if it's maybe not a cognitive deficit, but rather a motor issue, and trying to teach them in a painstaking way to move their own arms and hands to point to letters on a large letter board that's held in front of them. And when they did that, they started communicating and writing And the stuff that came out of them was unreal. And when I learned about this, it just, I i can't tell you how I felt because it's a lifelong assumption that they've been living with. So what I myself experienced for a few short years in one language only, they've been dealing with their entire lives in every way. They had no outlet. And so I started volunteering and um, I now teach creative writing to a group of these non-speakers. And it is, I just, again, I'm speechless <laughs> um, as to what I have learned through this process and how meaningful that's been to me, um, just especially given my own experience.
0: Yeah. But I mean, to imagine, you know, Eugene for 14 years wasn't able to say a single word, express a single emotion, really, and then to have the world open to him. You write it again so personally, so beautifully that, you know, this is why we read, so that we can understand, get a small piece of what you're feeling, right, and and to understand what it is to unlock a son, you know, a brother, to see that he has all kinds of big ideas going on. And he knows what happened to dad. And this really brings us to the next question of, you know, do we wanna know? And and that sounds crazy, but in fact, maybe it's easier to live with the fantasy of whatever Mia might want that to be, of what happened. So then they get to the question, do we want to know what happened to dad?
1: Yeah, and it's, of course, I'm sure the readers are going, yes, of course we want to know. Um, and we all do it. And of course the family does want to know also, but at the same time, if the truth is really, really hard, then I think the family could sort of be thinking, you know, I am not sure that I really want to know the exact truth it's hard to talk about without, you know, giving away everything that, um, happens at the end of the book and spoiling things for the reader. But I do think that there are some instances when you have to kind of choose, are you going to live with a small amount of uncertainty as to what might have happened so that you can sort of get comfort And also let others know that you're okay with whatever they told you. Mm -hmm. You're right. It sounds
0: crazy to say, do I really want to know? Right? Of course. Of course. And anyone reading or listening now is like, of course, what a question. But when you, the power of your writing is that you put us into that moment. It's like, do I really want to know my dad was having an affair and ran away? Or do I really want to know that he's dead? What is worse? What can I face? Right? That's where you get to this question of, am I ready to deal with the answer?
1: And if you have an answer that you might not be ready for, then, you know, it might be easier to just go along and um, in that way. If you're just joining us, I'm Rachel Berenbaum.
0: My guest today is Angie Kim, and you are listening to Check This Out on New Hampshire Public Radio. We're talking about Angie's new novel, Happiness Falls. So all of this, this question of, do I want to know what happened to dad, is really coming down to the question of, do I want to know dad? Do I want to know my mom? Do I want to know what's happening in this family? And I think this gets us to this big theme of, how well do we really ever know our parents?
1: We have a tendency to see our parents as our parents. And to see their role as, you know, our caretakers. And not really see or we possibly even want to see what they are doing outside of that domestic sphere. And especially our caregivers, especially the one who's the quote unquote, stay at home parent. And so I think it just get to this idea of what are the things that they are thinking as individuals that we didn't even think about. And Mia has some of these moments, not only with dad and finding out some of these things that he was thinking through, you know, going through his stuff, but even also the way that she sees her mom and the way that the mom is sort of dealing with the police and with outside lawyers and judges and all of these things that the family is having to go through. And she has several times when she's like, wow, I didn't really think mom could be like that. And I can kind of see what dad was talking about when he said that she was a badass, you know, uh, a career person in, in whatever way. And so she has those moments. And I think we we have those moments a lot. I certainly have that with my parents. I have that with my kids too and my husband and I think we all have that um, in in interesting ways. And I think it's an interesting way to sort of think about, you know, how well you know the people that you really, really love. Sometimes you love them so much that you are blind to what they're really like.
0: I'm Rachel Barenbaum. You're listening to Check This Out on NHPR. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment with my guest, Angie Kim. We're talking about her new novel, Happiness Falls. Stay tuned. If you're just joining us, I'm Rachel Barenbaum. My guest today is Angie Kim. You're listening to Check This Out on New Hampshire Public Radio. We're talking about Angie's new novel, Happiness Falls. So we're going to move into sort of the last segment of this show where I love to ask authors about the process or the business of being an author and writing the book itself. We have a lot of listeners that are writers, aspiring writers, and who want to hear about some of the details. Um, So you've written this, you know, amazing whodunit, what happened to dad thriller type, which we've discussed is really about um, these bigger themes of silence and language and racism and what we fill in, right, and immigration, what we fill into these spaces where there's no noise. Um, But you do that by sort of doling out clues slowly, right? And you give us a small piece every once in a while, just enough to keep us going. So how did you keep track of what clues you were going to drop and when?
1: So I'm not a plotter, especially for this book. I didn't actually think that this book was going to be um, considered very much of a thriller. (laughs) And I'm still a little bit surprised when um, people um, call it that, uh, but in a good way. And I just really thought about Um, the idea of like this family and what it would feel like, um, and really trying to be inside one person's head, which was so interesting to me because for Miracle Creek, my first novel, I had seven point of view characters. And so I had chapters going back and forth between different people all the time, which was really fun. This one, I had to stay in Mia's head the entire time. And I did that deliberately because I really thought, you know, one of the things that I wanted to explore was when something like a missing person happens in your life. Um just the frustration of not knowing anything. I mean, and Mia talks about this, how a missing person mystery is actually the most frustrating, but also the most intriguing mystery because you really don't know anything. You Anything could have happened. The whole, like the range of possibilities is so vast that it's just unbelievable. You don't even know where to begin. And so I think um, in order to explore that frustration of not knowing anything, I really wanted to stay in one person's head. And that is Mia, who wants desperately to know as much as she can about everything. So it's especially frustrating for her. And I think from so I kind of was in her head and thinking to myself, okay, what can she learn? That's what is she learning? What's happening? And I made a number of missteps where I would have, you know, where I would have something happen and then um, realize, you know what? No, this is just going down a different way and then having to backtrack. And really, the clues and the plot level things that happened really happened after I was done with my first draft. And this happened with Miracle Creek as well. Because I'm not an outliner, because I'm not a plotter, what I tend to do is I just write and then um focusing in on these little tiny details, as we talked about, and the darlings, and trying to sort of make the writing fit and justify the, the kind of darlings that I have throughout, sprinkled throughout the narrative. And then once I'm done, then sitting down and outlining it. And I actually kind of outline as I'm going along. So once I'm done with a scene or a chapter, then I put it into this blank outline that I have that gets slowly filled out over three years or something like that. And then looking at the outline and saying, okay, so what is happening from a story structure, story architecture perspective? What are the events that are happening? What are the clues that are being doled out? Where are the missteps? Where are the red herrings? And then revising to make sure that those feel... Organic and that they feel um, like they're doled out in the right um, spaces from a pacing perspective.
0: Okay, that's great. So it, that's amazing. So you write this full sort of first draft and then you went back
1: to make sure the clues were in the right place at the right time. Exactly. And, you know, and then shortening a lot of things. I'm an overwriter. So I had to basically be like, okay, I basically have to get rid of 90% of this section versus only 50% of this other section. Yeah.
0: Okay. But I have to ask you if you didn't think this was a thriller, what did you think you were writing?
1: Um, I thought I was writing a family drama. I still think I, that's what uh, in large parts of what this is. Um, yeah. I thought I was writing a voice driven family drama of what a family goes through in the face of a missing person rather than a missing person mystery, if you will. I mean, in a way, um, I think the missing person mystery is um, a, a Trojan horse of sorts, a way in for me as the writer to start writing and also a way in for the readers to sort of hook them and get them invested in what this family is going through, and then use that to explore not only what's happening with respect to the investigation and things like that, but also the family's background, their relationships with each other, their dynamics, and really explore sort of the emotions that the family must be going through when they're having to um, deal with things like, yeah, their their beloved father, the anchor of the family going missing and finding out new things about him and about Eugene also. And sort of, you know, the the emotional fallout from all of that, as much as the what really happened to dad, which of course, they want to know as well. And we do too. It's like,
0: the, the, what really happened to dad keeps us turning the pages in a sense, but then the reason that I can't stop thinking about the book is because I'm thinking about the silences, the language, immigration, racism, right? Those bigger themes are what haunt
1: me after I'm done reading. Exactly. I think those are my favorite types of books. And, um, for example, Tim O'Brien's In the Lake of the Woods, which is one of my favorite books Ever that got me to stop being a lawyer. And it's a long story, but I, I basically read this in one day and I loved it so much that I was like, why am I a lawyer? I hate being a lawyer. I want to be doing something like this. And eventually, you know, years later became um, a writer, but that book has a missing person at the very beginning. Um, the protagonist's wife goes missing. And, um, and there is a missing person investigation, but that's not really what the book is about. The book is really about what this couple went through in their marriage and, um, what this protagonist went through in the Vietnam war and how those are manifesting in the current day. And so I wanted to do something similar and I hope that I did the same thing with, my debut novel as well. There is a who done it, how done it, why done it, but that's really a way into the immigrant slash special needs parenting experience and what it's like being a medical and cultural outsider.
0: Yeah. So um, you mentioned that you were a lawyer. You also studied philosophy. And there is a lot of philosophy in this book. Um, And in fact, you get to this passage where you say something to the effect of, language makes us human. And so if you don't have language, are you human? Um, And I really loved that quote. And I wanted to ask you to please tell me talk about that quote and how you know that idea and how you thought about that.
1: Yeah, that idea is such an interesting one. and it's a kind of a simplistic, very, very simplified version of Chomsky's theory about language and grammar being inherent to humans, uh, which is a, you know, a linguistic nativism kind of idea that he is credited with starting. And I, you know, and people have talked about whether it's an ableist assumption, because what about the people who can't speak? Um, And so Mia sort of one of our narrators who thinks deeply about philosophy and a lot of ideas that are interesting. She sort of thinks the same way. She says, you know, I've never really liked Chomsky because of that idea that he has because to me that means that people who can't talk like Eugene are less than human. And then she realizes after some conversations with the mom, who is a linguistics PhD and who idolizes Chomsky, that she actually has a different interpretation, which is that Eugene does have language. Just because he can't speak them doesn't mean that he is quote unquote nonverbal. He has language. He just can't speak them out loud. That's not the same. And so I thought that was such an interesting way to think about sort of the semantic difference between, you know, nonverbal and non-speaking. My non-speaking students will riot when you call them nonverbal, you know, because a lot of, which a lot of people do. They say they're nonverbal autistics. And they're like, no, I am not nonverbal. I am just... Non-speaking. That's not the same thing. I have words. And it, you can't just say that it's just a semantic difference because semantics affects the way that we assume things and see the world. And so don't call me nonverbal.
0: I love that. And in the book, there's actually you go through the moments where the family realizes that Eugene can spell. And that he's been reading subtitles this whole time, right? He can read and no one recognized
1: it. Yeah, absolutely. And that happens so much with um, my students. They, you know, people will, the parents of these students that I've talked to will talk about the first time that they saw them spell something and they are thinking this must be a joke because... I didn't even know how, like, how does my son even know how to spell anything? We didn't teach him. And you're just like, yeah, you d- did. Because, you know, like they've, they've gone through all of this and they've been noticing things without us, uh, with, with them assuming that they didn't notice any of that and that they weren't absorbing and that they weren't learning because that's what our assumption was of, of these people. If you're just joining us, I'm Rachel Barenbaum.
0: My guest today is Angie Kim, and you're listening to Check This Out on New Hampshire Public Radio. We're talking about her new novel, Happiness Falls. Angie, I want to get into the um, insides, right, the the hardcore part of writing this novel. Can you talk to me about, about, you know, how long did it take you to write this book?
1: So the characters have been with me for 13 years. I wrote my first short story about this family— When I first started writing, um, so and that was published in 2013, and this particular story with a father going missing, although I didn't realize the father was missing, but I knew it had something to do with happiness and Eugene's speaking and not speaking and all of that sort of stuff, Um, that happened maybe about six years ago. So it's been going, yeah, I've been thinking about it for a very, very long time.
0: About how many drafts do you think you've gone through to get to
1: this published version? It's so hard to know because I edit as I go along. So each scene I write and I probably have edited each scene before I even sent it to my agent or editor or any beta readers at least 20 times. And then after I sent it to my beta readers, then my agent, then my editor, then my, you know, copy editor and several rounds with my editor, I would say, I don't know, like each passage has been probably edited a hundred times. Wow.
0: Wow. In full
1: drafts, I would say 20 times. Amazing. Amazing.
0: So what kind of advice do you have for new writers or aspiring
1: writers? So for new and aspiring writers, one of my first go-to pieces of advice is to start small and to write short stories. So many people think, oh, I have a novel in me. And I'm sure you do. But I think it's great to start with small short stories, not small stories, short stories, And to go through the entire process of writing, of workshopping, of getting feedback, of revising and editing over and over and then sending them out to literary magazines. Go through the entire process. Get those rejection letters and see what it feels like because you are going to experience that 100,000 times over with a longer piece of work like a novel. And make sure that you really love it and that you're ready for it and that you're like, yeah, bring it on. I love that. So to be clear, rejection is part of the process. Absolutely. And it's a part of the process that you have to not only be ready for, but really embrace and use to make your writing better. i firmly believe that I really really believe that when you give it to your beta readers and they say "eh, this doesn't work for me and you're and you don't get discouraged you just go okay let me try to see what they're seeing and try to make it better that is what teaches you how to write and you need to love that process or else you're not going to survive.
0: I love that. How about the mechanics of writing? Do you recommend that people set aside a certain amount of time every day? Or how do you do it? And what advice do you give to people for that?
1: So I'm a little bit unusual. (laughs) So I'm not sure that I would recommend what I do. What I wish I would do is set aside a certain number of hours a day, is preferably in the morning, two to three hours, stop And then do, you know, normal, wonderful things with your family and, you know, go exercise and all that kind of stuff. I don't do that. I am very inertial. And so when I'm in a scene, I just cannot stop. And so, and it takes me a while to get in a scene. So when I'm in a scene, I will often work from like 8 a.m. to 8 (laughs) p.m. nonstop. And, um... And so, and, and I do a process called method writing. Um, I think it's from my early days when I was in theater and I did so much method acting. So I like to really try to get inside a character's head and try to stay there as much as possible when I'm writing a scene actively. And so, um, so it really helps with that for me to write for as long as possible on the days that I'm writing.
0: And um, you are unbelievably good at promotion, at getting your book out there. And it is something that a lot of authors and writers are scared to do. So can you offer some advice on promotion?
1: Yeah, I'm kind of surprised to hear you say
0: I mean it as 100% a compliment because I think a lot of people think that you can write a beautiful novel and that will sell itself. And sometimes that happens, but most of the time that doesn't. And you can write the most beautiful novel ever written. And unless you are in the promotion machine, nobody will read it.
1: Oh, believe me, I took it as a compliment. I'm just I just feel so awkward at social media and things like that. And so um, luckily, I think with both my debut novel and this one, I've had an amazing group of uh, and team of publicists and marketers and people like that who have really helped me and told me sort of what to do and set up wonderful events kind of like this one, right? Um, And arranged for a lot of that kind of publicity.
0: I love that because you have the business of writing the book and then the business of selling the book and they are separate but equally as important.
1: Very much so, because especially in this day and age, you know, you really can't just be like, oh, well, I'm going to write now and then I'll let, you know, I'll, I'll let my book go out into the world and see what happens because, no, it's a lot of work and you have to be willing to do both and you have to enjoy both, I think.
0: Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you and I look forward to staying in touch and reading a lot more in the future. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Check This Out, a new literary series, which is a partnership between New Hampshire Public Radio and the Howe Library in Hanover, New Hampshire. We dive deeply into the works of emerging and diverse authors you may not have discovered yet. I'm Rachel Barenbaum, and I'll be back next week at the same time with more conversations. Our producers today are Jared Jenish, Megan Coleman, and NHPR's Emily Quirk. The Howe Library director is Ruby Simon. NHPR's program director is Emily Quirk. The show is sponsored by the Jack and Dorothy Byrne Foundation and the Howe Library Corporation. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time.